Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Well, good morning. And the uh, hurricane has passed now mostly out of uh, the state of Florida. And I'm grateful to say that uh, the first responders in Florida have been doing incredibly well. If you follow uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and some of the uh, Florida first uh, responders and, and the management pages you will get all of the updates there so um i did survive my first hurricane as a florida resident so very grateful for that and for uh, everyone in this state who uh who was very kind i was asking um, various people you know as I, was, I was going to the store and um getting some things for hurricane preparation um so you know what what should i prepare for and the number one thing i heard was um you need to have a hurricane party Apparently, that is a thing in, in the state of Florida, and um, everyone listening in Florida is probably going, well, yeah, obviously. So, um, so hurricane parties are apparently a thing, so I will need to get out my collection of board games uh, next time, and that, that would be great. Um, so that that's really good news, and um, apparently all roads are open as of this morning. And again, I continue to follow those updates uh, with Governor DeSantis. Uh, so Senator Ron Paul yesterday tweeted this. One way to destroy a democratic republic is to criminalize speech. When will Democrat supporters of the First Amendment step forward? And he linked to an opinion piece in The Hill. The title is The Criminalization of Politics to Get Trump is Endangering Everyone's Rights. So Brian Darling, who is a former counsel to Senator Paul, joins me now. And Brian, thank you so much for writing this piece. Um, I think everything that you express here is a really spot on. So um, walk us through your uh, opinion here on the uh, criminalization of politics and why, um, and I agree with you, this is endangering everyone's rights. Well, there were two starting points to it. First of all, the idea that the First Amendment to the Constitution protects political speech. And, you know, the Constitution doesn't give us these rights. These are God-given rights that are recognized by the Constitution, and so the Constitution merely recognizes pre-existing rights that existed before the Constitution was written. And also the second idea is the fact that politics is separate from um, from the activity. From for, You can't characterize political activities as crimes just because you want to. And if we devolve into a situation where we're imprisoning people who are in the opposition party when they lose, then we're going to be no better than these banana republics that basically put people in jail right after they lose an election. So we want to avoid that. And, and so when you look at these uh, criminal cases, they're based in basically the criminalization of politics, the idea that the whole electors, they call it the fake elector scheme, whatever you want to call it, um, that was politics. And that was something that um, the Trump campaign obviously tried to do. It failed. It didn't work out. The Congress did accept the electors when uh, the certificates of the electors when they were submitted. But the bottom line is that whole situation was a political exercise. And when you think about 
the idea of this being a con- criminal conspiracy, uh, by definition, every campaign is a conspiracy. That's what you do. You're organizing. So it's very easy to make believe that it's a criminal conspiracy if you call it so. But if you allow the government to criminalize politics, you're giving great power to the federal government, more power than they had during the lockdowns. And it's going to put all Americans in danger where their political speech is going to be uh, studied. And if you say something that's uh, unpopular, for example, now, if you start criticizing the gay community, you're going to be in big trouble. And maybe in the future, just saying that will get you in jail because it happens in different countries. And if you if you can get involved in politics and you lose, maybe you're going to end up in jail, too. So we need to avoid the criminalization of speech and politics. Yeah, really well said. And I've been saying uh, that this is an attempt to criminalize the practice of law with respect to uh, the lawyers, myself included, that are part of uh, the Georgia indictment. But I think that this is an even broader uh, perspective that that makes a lot of sense that this uh, this is criminalizing political speech and political activity. And a lot of people um, that I've seen just, you know, kind of push back on this notion and say, well, it's not about speech. It's about action. Um, how would how would you either not differentiate that or respond to that argument? Well, talking about the criminalization of lawyering, I think that's also a very important issue that I didn't address directly in the op-ed. I mean, the idea that you can be a lawyer. I mean, I, I'm I'm a lawyer. I practiced law for years up in Massachusetts, and you take cases. Sometimes you agree with, sometimes you don't. You're making arguments. You make arguments that you go into court with, and to to criminalize that would also be a huge problem. And the fact that you have you know many lawyers getting in trouble. For in these Trump controversies is going down that road of criminalization lawyering and doing your job and, and going and representing a client. And again, you know, the, the activities, political activities should be protected by the Constitution, not just speech. And the fact that you had um, you had the what, let, me, let me put it in a perspective and, and use an example. So the Georgia electors or, you know, as, as the left calls them, the fake electors, they get together and they, they, they say, hey, we're going to do a certificate and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Maybe the courts are going to go in the direction of Trump. So they basically can bank this and, and it's possible that somehow it'll be recognized and Congress will at some point or, or the, elect, the Electoral College will at some point vote on whether to accept it or reject it. I mean, I feel you look at the perspective of one of those electors and how is how are those individuals getting in trouble for something that they are looking at prospectively? They didn't know how this was all going to work out. And you're basically calling them fake electors and, and accusing them of being criminals, which is just an awful, awful thing. And I'm talking to Brian Darling, who is a former counsel to Senator Rand Paul, and his op-ed is in The Hill, uh, and it's titled, The Criminalization of Politics to Get Trump is Endangering Everyone's Rights. And um, and Brian, one of the things that you uh, that you argue in here and that we've been talking about as well is um, is this this idea of um, of politicking and of you know trying to um, move forward in the best possible way to, to get your candidate elected. And you know, I mean, that is what politics 
um, are for. And that's literally what every campaign is for. And so the outcome here, if we're criminalizing political activity and suggesting that um, that campaigns are basically um, organized crime rings, this would have a chilling effect on political activity that that is lawful and and that the loser essentially would um, would be very concerned that then they're not going to have their own their freedom and liberty. Um, and so where where is the line here in terms of, um, you know, I think this is so far beyond anything that our founders or our constitution ever have contemplated. Um, so so where how are they even able to try to get away with this? Well, the problem is we do have an over over criminalization problem in our country. And you do have laws on the books that are subjective and arbitrary and capricious, and, and they can be interpreted in a way that allows for bad actor prosecutors to use these laws to go after politicians. And it just, we don't have precedent for what's going now, but now we're setting precedent. And, you know, the, the old thing goes, bad cases make bad law. Well, if you have a prosecutor who's using this situation now to set a precedent, even if they fail, I mean, you're, you're showing that a prosecutor can get away with at least starting this process of uh, trying to criminalize some political activities, and they're going to get away with it. They're going to be rewarded. You're going to have you know, different prosecutors get rewarded. They're going to maybe get federal judgeships. They're going to get appointments to different uh, federal boards. And it's all going to be because of their activities now, even if they lose these cases. And that's that's a problem. I mean, the fact that we have laws on the books that are unclear that allow this. And, and, and that's, that is a huge problem in our country when you have when you granted the power to prosecutors and uh, officials at the Department of Justice to go to, to use these laws that aren't written succinctly enough to criminalize politics. And I'm speaking with Brian Darling, who is the um, opinion writer of this piece in The Hill and former counsel to Senator Rand Paul. And you make a great point in here as well that um, should Raskin and all the Democrat House members who tried to disenfranchise voters be prosecuted for their attempt to negate the sacred voting rights of American citizens? Their actions were morally wrong and violated their sacred oaths. Yet I believe it would be wrong to hold them criminally liable for such engagement in partisan politics. So you wrote that, and you know there is this pushback from uh, the right to say, okay, because we've crossed the Rubicon now on uh, this whole indictment, then the only solution then is to go after the Democrats in the same way and start charging them with criminal conspiracy, start um, you know throwing them in jail. And I think that would be a disaster. I mean, I you know I, my bar license has been come after, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to go and file uh, frivolous bar complaints against other lawyers for doing their job. So, um, so what is the answer to this in your mind as as a lawyer and as someone you know who's obviously been on Capitol Hill um, in terms of how we can sort of write this this system that has gone off the rails? Well, first of all, you need you need to have politicians act in good faith. I mean, Jamie Raskin constantly, he's a, a congressman from Maryland. Unfortunately, he, I live in his district, so he represents me. Um, but he, um, you know, he's somebody who objected to Florida electors um, in, in the past. And he claimed that there was a, a problem with the electors certificates. And ultimately, he was pushing for the idea of disenfranchising voters in Florida uh, 
who voted for Trump. And so that that's, you know, this is the same guy who sat in the January 6th committee and was holier than thou about um, everything that happened that day and the fact that uh, you had Republicans who voted against seating electors for President Biden. And, and it's, you know, I, I never expect consistency with politicians, but it's just unbelievable when you have that happen, where you have politicians basically trading talking points. One day they're four seating electors, the next day they're not. And so I think you just we just need to have faith that politicians will be elected and the American people will elect um, politicians that will do the right thing. And I think that's something that is lost, and it's very much lost in Washington, is that one of the checks on government power are the people. And the when you have politicians taking an oath to abide by the Constitution, the enforcement mechanism there are the people. It's not the courts. It's the people making the right decision, putting the right people in there to make sure that their politicians follow the Constitution. We always kind of fall back, and especially us as lawyers, fall back in the courts and the Supreme Court having the final word. But they don't. The American people do. Yeah, really, uh, really good point. And and you also write in this piece, you know, this use of Trump to set a new standard criminalizes engagement in politics and free speech will endanger voters' rights. Uh, let's hope this is an effort. Uh, let's hope this effort to criminalize politics fails. And um, I hope that uh, as well. And I hope that we are not uh, past the point of uh, of no return here. And I also hope that um, this whole entire process will give, um, especially people right, but also on the left, a better understanding of what our system is designed for. And, you know, some of the responses, and some of them could be trolls, but some of the responses that I'm uh, seeing, even across social media from prominent accounts, um, I think, Brian, really just don't understand uh, what's at stake here and what the practice of lawyering is, what the uh, right to petition the government, which doesn't just include the court system, um, you know, includes the legislative and executive branches as well. They don't understand the entire system of politicking, and, and for some of them, I think they don't want to. But um, this also may be an opportunity to uh, educate people in terms of how our system works and um, why you know, the Electoral College uh, is the mechanism by which we elect our uh, our chief magistrates, as, as Hamilton said in uh, Federalist 64. So, uh, Brian Darling, really appreciate it. How can people uh, follow you on social media and your work? Yeah, I'm at um, Brian Darling on Twitter or X, whatever it's called these days. And I do um, publish uh, frequently at Town Hall and at uh, The Hill. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And the headline is the criminalization of politics. Trump is endangering everyone's rights. Read that today at The Hill. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And the impeachment trial for Ken Paxton uh, started 
on Tuesday, and uh, there is a piece in the Caller Times that says that uh, this is likely to gain national attention, and it already has, but for a variety of reasons. And so uh, Matt Rinaldi, who's with the Texas uh, GOP and, and the chairman there, uh, joins me now. So, Matt, um, first, how is this going? And um, and I think, you know, for people who aren't necessarily specifically paying attention um, to the ins and outs of this impeachment trial, like we all did, the, the two impeachment uh, shams of uh, President Trump, uh, what are the specific allegations here and, and why are we even here? Uh, it, it's actually, uh, I, I think, as far as structure goes, even more of a sham than the impeachment trials of Donald Trump, because at least they heard testimony and evidence. Um, in this one, the House uh, hired a few Democrat prosecutors to produce a report that they then plopped in front of the body debated for two hours and then just voted to impeach him based on that alone. So um, that's basically what's been going on here. And it's being driven by Democrats in the House who some of your listeners may not know here in Texas. Our state House is the only legislative body in the country where the majority party, Republicans, voluntarily shares power with Democrats. So um, the Democrats have been driving this. They've been driving it for two years since Ken Paxton filed lawsuits challenging the 2020 election results, and they've been wanting to impeach him ever since. Um, I think it's part of a pattern of not only the weaponization of politics, but also the criminalization of the legal profession uh, and making plausible legal arguments in court for your clients, which I'm sure you are very aware of, Jenna. <laughs> yes, and uh, this seems this does seem to be a pattern, and it seems like... Uh, you know, anyone who is willing to stand up and, uh, you know, make an argument and, uh, you know, fight for a, a Republican uh, then ends up being a target of the weaponization of government. And uh, so so what are the Republicans then in the Senate uh, looking at? I mean, what what do you project in terms of the outcome of this trial and how long is this going to take? Um, given the time limits in the rules that were set out, I assume it's going to take probably two to three weeks. There's 24, 24 hours for each side to present arguments, some short rebuttals after. So if they're doing about six hours a day with breaks and everything, I'm, I'm thinking between two to three weeks. Um, now, somebody had mentioned that the time limit should apply to each count, and that would make it really long if they if they took it that way. But I, I think probably two to three weeks is safe. Okay, and uh, and I'm speaking with Matt Rinaldi, who is the uh, Texas GOP chairman, and. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that, th that this is the, the weaponization of government, um, you know, across all levels, really. And, and I think this is what is so frustrating for a lot of specifically Republicans that are looking at um, some of these sham trials and, and really show trials. And so for the state of Texas um, in particular, is is this impeachment of Paxton going to be, um, if successful or unsuccessful, is this going to set a precedent for how uh, how political uh, things are run? And um, is, is the GOP there looking at this in terms of trying to uh, make sure to establish good precedent? Yeah, we, we've been very aggressive in supporting the 20, uh, 20, nearly 25 Republicans in the House uh, many of whom are the best lawyers in the House, um, who opposed impeachment. 
because it would set such a bad precedent. So we've been aggressively uh, attacking the process by which this impeachment happened. Um, and, of course, the motives, too, um, were, were, were not to seek justice or, or, or you know, right or wrong. If it was, those Republicans that helped Democrats in impeaching would have been calling for his impeachment prior to 48 hours before the vote. But they never did. Not a single Republican called for Ken Paxton's impeachment prior to two days before this vote happened. What happened was there was a deal made with Democrats, and then leadership told them, you will be voting for this impeachment. And then they suddenly said, well, we've always been supportive of this impeachment. It needs to be done. Um, So terrible precedent. The party has been actively advocating for it not to set a precedent going forward. Wow. And and that seems a lot like Trump. And, um, you know, according to this piece in the Caller Times, um, there are a lot of Trump Paxton comparisons in terms of um, how much of a sham um, all of these impeachments are. And it is a weaponization of government um, in that sense, because uh, for a lot of people, when they think about weaponization of government, they think of just uh, prosecutions from the executive branch in a um, in a criminal law context, and certainly, obviously, those are going on as well. And um, and and not just to get against Trump, but in the broader sense, against um, you know pastors and journalists who've had their their uh, doors kicked in by the FBI. You have uh, parents who uh, who are being put on the domestic terrorism watch list uh, just because they show up at school board meetings. I mean, these are mm-hmm. all all levels of government, and and this is uh, the legislative branch that's attempting to weaponize impeachment and use. That against political opponents for something that clearly the impeachment process was not intended for. And so from a a Texas constitution perspective, uh, where where is impeachment legitimate and why are so many people, and I would agree with this, uh, that that Paxton's impeachment is not legitimate in terms of what uh, the Texas constitution, what the legislative branch should actually be pursuing? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's legitimate when there are impeachable offenses um, that uh, were committed during the office holder's term that the legislature feels justifies ending his term in office. Now, all of Paxton's counts, all 20 counts, except uh, 19 of 20 counts, to be fair, um, deal with things that happened between two and eight years ago that the public knew about when they overwhelmingly elected him last election. And then before he even put his hand on the Bible, the House started planning to impeach him because their guy didn't win the primary. Um, so, so, so that's what's happening here. The Texas law doesn't allow him to be impeached for anything that happened prior to that election. And that's what his, his lawyers are currently arguing. Which, I mean, so so this is, I mean, in a sense, um, a this is barred by the process. I mean, almost similarly to a statute of limitations kind of thing. That you know, if you're outside of when you can uh, lawfully bring that type of charge, even if there is a sufficient basis for it, you're outside of the time frame that you can be. And so, um, so how are these arguments um, being presented, and and who decides those in the context of the Senate trial? So in the Senate trial, there's been a motion to dismiss 19 of the 20 counts uh, in the Senate. The Senate will then, before they start hearing evidence, vote on whether or not to sustain those counts. And if a majority votes to dismiss a count, that count's dismissed. 
Um, the 20th count, by the way, that that was a new count that that arose this term, just so your listeners know, is an allegation that it was an impeachable offense to ask for three million dollars from the legislature to settle a whistleblower lawsuit. So it was an impeachable offense to ask for money from the legislature openly and transparently that he had in his budget anyway and could have spent without asking. Which is, is just mind-bogglingly ridiculous. I mean, how are they even yeah. how are they, how are they even articulating that as somehow an impeachable offense uh, to go and ask for budget to do your job as as the attorney general? It, 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 exactly. If that's an impeachable offense, I think every uh, every office holder would would have committed an impeachable offense. Well, and, and exactly. And this is exactly where we're headed in this country with the criminalization of the practice of law, the criminalization of political speech, the um, the impeachable offenses of, uh, you know, what they, the ridiculous shams for for Donald Trump uh, that they were trying to jam through uh, the the United States Senate. And now with all of this that's outside the, the limitations for Ken Paxton and then for actually just doing his job. I mean, these are things that I think the American people rightly should look at and say, this is not how our system was designed for. This is not at all the the function of the government. And so where then, Matt Rinaldi, is the accountability for the people who are using taxpayer dollars to then promulgate and, and pursue this impeachment? Because according to their rules, they should be impeached or potentially criminally liable if this ultimately fails, right? I mean, isn't that the standard that they're suggesting? Yeah, I guarantee you with the amount of lawyers they hired, the House impeachment managers are going to spend over $3 million on this impeachment easy. Um, so, wow. so, yeah, the accountability is, in this instance, unlike the Trump impeachment, there are Republicans participating. There are liberal Republicans that are enabling Democrats that are participating in this, which is particularly frustrating because we're, we're all under attack. Democrats want to arrest us and put us in jail for our political beliefs. And then you have Republicans coming and joining them in certain instances. Democrats don't do that. And that's a threat to us. So, um, you know, that's what's particularly troubling. But we can get rid of those Republicans in primaries. Primaries are coming up in March. A lot of those people will be opposed. Find out how they voted on this impeachment vote. That should be of great concern to you. And then vote accordingly in the primary. Yeah, and and uh, the primary is is a huge way to to then uh, pick better candidates. And uh, and yet the statistics show that far fewer people, um, even among the Republican Party, turn out to primaries. And um, looking back just at the last midterm, there were a lot of people broadly, I mean, in the state of Texas as well as nationally, that were um, America First candidates or you know people who um, that were typified that way because uh, they were new to the whole process. They saw um, all of this going on in America. And they said, you know what, I want to step up and uh, run for office because I want to help um, get our country righted and, you know, take it back for the rule of law in the U.S. Constitution. And um, largely, a lot of those campaigns were not supported by the Republican Party or um, or otherwise, you know, were unsuccessful. And so just looking mm-hmm. at the state of politics in the state of Texas, um, what do you think is important from you know your chairman perspective, um, Matt Rinaldi, for for voters in the state of Texas to consider when they're looking at the primary field? I, I think what's important to consider is is the truth. I mean, like with anything, 
And um, what we're trying to do as an organization, as a Republican Party organization, is just make sure that we can become a trusted source that voters can look to when they get, you know, millions of dollars spent on mailers that are trying to obfuscate the truth and they don't know which side to believe. Uh, we'll let them know exactly what happened to, you know, a, a bill banning uh, critical race theory in colleges and why that died um, and who was responsible. So uh, hopefully we can cut through all of the smoke and mirrors and all of the money that's spent trying to cover the truth and, and provide a trusted source for them. Yeah, and that that is incredibly important. And um, what would you say as well to some of the voters? And and, and to me, this is like the worst possible response uh, for the people who say, well, you know, I I, I've seen what's happened over the last few elections. Republicans aren't winning. I don't have faith in the process. We don't have election integrity. And so, uh, you know, this isn't even worth it. And I'm going to sit it out. And, you know, I'm not even going to, to exercise my right to vote because what good does it do anyway? Well, it does a lot of good. I mean, in order to, uh, you know, voter fraud provides a margin. Um, If you're above that margin, it it still can't do anything. Voter fraud can't turn a 5% election. Um, So your vote still does matter, even if there's fraud. But here in Texas, the Republican Party spent millions of dollars um, on election integrity, making sure that in, in trouble areas, every single poll had Republicans at them as poll watchers. And we had one of one of the probably the most secure election in recent history here in the state of Texas. And where we didn't, we're following up with election contests in Harris County as we speak and funding them. So here in Texas, your vote definitely matters. Uh, and even outside, if you suspect voter fraud, it matters also. We got to get above that margin there. Yeah, and that was one of the things that uh, that Ken Paxton did really well, um, even in the 2020 election, was uh, to make sure that um, you know there were good legal challenges, and um, you know he was one of the ones that I remember talking to him on my shows uh, in terms of you know what he did as Attorney General to make sure uh, that that he was protecting um, the system and everything that was going on in the state of Texas, and we need more of that for sure. And so, um, so moving forward then for um, you know, for the the primary and, and kind of getting past uh, this whole um, impeachment, if if people want to support Ken Paxton um, and and are very concerned in the state of Texas about the outcome of the impeachment, um, can they still get involved in terms of uh, letting their voices be heard in support of Ken Paxton? Yes, absolutely. Um, you can obviously call your state senator and let them know how you feel. Um, or you can go on TexasGOP.org, um, join our grassroots club, give us a donation, because right now all the parties are under gag orders, but the Texas GOP is not. So we've been actively communicating with people um, on the Paxton matter uh, and supporting our attorney general. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for the work that you do in the great state of Texas. Matt Rinaldi, you can follow him at Matt Rinaldi TX for Texas. And then also go to TexasGOP.org. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Well, Donald Trump has raised $20 million in August with a hearty $9.4 million since his mugshot was taken in Fulton County, Georgia. And according to Fox News, former President Trump has made has raised more than $9.4 million since being processed and taking a mugshot in Fulton County, Georgia last week, bringing the Trump campaign's fundraising numbers for the month of August to more than $20 million. And according to a journalist, Colin Rugg, on X, formerly known as Twitter, he said, talk about a massive backfire, according According to Fox News Digital, the Trump campaign sold 36,000 T-shirts, 24,000 coffee mugs, and uh, 8,600 posters, all with Trump's mugshot on them. So the mugshot has been uh, kind of a big deal. And uh, this has also sparked a conversation about uh, whether or not this will influence uh, black voters. And I think this is a fascinating conversation from a couple of different perspectives. And so joining me now is former White House official Jerron Smith, who has a new book out on uh, can the GOP do right by black voters this election? And I definitely want to get into that conversation. But um, good morning, Jerron. And, uh, you know, what what do you think overall about this mugshot? And is this going to um, influence? I mean, I, th- I think it's it's rallied voters in general. But um, do you do you buy the idea that this specifically somehow resonates with black voters specifically? Sure. So I don't necessarily buy the idea that the mugshot by itself resonates with um Black voters, I think that in concert with Trump's record uh, with empowering the community. He was a leader on criminal justice reform with the passage of the First Step Act. Uh, Many individuals in the black community um, that uh, supported those efforts, specifically the families that had loved ones that came home and are now living productive lives. Um, Many of those advocates um, are siding and in this in this mugshot is kind of having them um, upset because they feel like the system's treating him unfair in the same way that they their loved one might have been treated unfair. But I don't think it's just one of those things that the mugshot alone uh, is is really encouraging support of the president. It's the fact that he has a record of doing work that has empowered the community and people feel like uh, that he's been unfairly treated. Now, another piece of that is that the African-American community has felt unfairly treated by by law enforcement. If you kind of look at the history of like the FBI with um, Martin King or um, COINTELPRO, um, these are kind of uh, areas where we've seen um, uh, weaponization of the government against, you know, um, the civil rights movement or the black empowerment movement. And so those are things that um, historically uh, are significant and that you may be able to create some understanding in the community from seeing the mugshot. Yeah, and there's um, one of one of my friends on social media, um, Adam Coleman, um, who is a writer at uh, at Wrongspeak. Um, he said this: the vast majority of Black people are not criminals and have zero relationship with the criminal justice system. So it is far from being relatable to Black people as a whole. It's ridiculous that I even have to state this. Um, how would you respond uh, to those who think that um, that this whole idea? And and I've heard this, you know, from from Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr. 
and and a few others that um, somehow you know the mugshot does resonate with um, the black community and I've seen some of um, my friends in that community that are pushing back saying you know hey we're, we're not all criminals and so they're actually taking that um, as more or less offensive yeah we, we as a party um, and our leaders have to be sensitive to the fact that 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 is true that like that's why I um, created the caveat that it's not just a mugshot, but it's also his record, his leadership on criminal justice reform, and then also um, maybe the community, the, the, the broader community understanding that like the justice system isn't always fair. And that's something that um, African Americans can relate to. Um, but I, I would be very careful to just on its face say that like, oh, he has a mugshot and that that just sends off a message that the majority of our community is, you know, you know, formerly incarcerated or have been justice involved. And that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, when when I had uh, my mugshot taken as well in, in Fulton County, you know, I was getting texts from uh, my my friends and family members saying, you know, wow, you're you're a gangster. now, Jenna. And so, you know, we never thought we'd have one of those in our family. So I have to ask you, Jerron, did you like my mugshot or President Trump's mugshot better? Who did? Who wore it better? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's 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 tough seeing anybody with a mugshot. You know, um, I've I've certainly been just as involved myself, and it wasn't a wasn't a um, cool thing to have one, but like it's a, it's an interesting time. You know, a lot of famous people have had mugshots, so I guess you get to join the crowd. <laughs> right. And yeah, you know, and I was on um, my good friend Liz Wheeler's show uh, this past week and um, and she surprised me actually with this game that it was rate the mugshots. And, you know, and some of them with with some of these um, celebrities who, of course, you know, have gone on to do you know much, much greater things. Um, I didn't even realize had a mugshot for various things. And of course, um, you know, one of the most prominent, if not um, the most symbolic of um, of the civil rights movement and moving forward to create a more perfect union, um, you know, is, is Martin Luther King Jr. And um, and that is, is so symbolic to, to um, not only the civil rights movement, but to show how the weaponization of government in uh, in context of the broader scope of history, people look back and say that was wrong and, and, and history will prove the judge. And I think it'll be fascinating to see um, how Donald Trump's uh, mugshot and, and this entire weaponization of government against him um, is is analyzed by historians, you know, well down the road when we're not in the midst of this whole uh, political battle. And um and so, so while you know we are in the midst of this, um, your opinion piece in Newsweek is: uh, Can the GOP do right by black voters this election? Um, and your answer is yes. Just follow Trump's lead. And um, so, what do you think are really the key issues? Then, if we if we look at the weaponization of government, I think that is a huge issue for Americans and for voters across the spectrum. Um, what in particular, though, does the GOP need to do? Um, to to bring out more of the vote um, and, and and to get what are communities that are traditionally uh, Democrat voters. Sure. So I wrote a book called Underserved, um, Harnessing Lincoln's Vision for Reconstruction for Today's Forgotten Communities. That comes out um, September 5th next week. And uh, in that book, I highlight um, this strategy that I alluded to um, in the article. It's a holistic strategy um, that encompasses everything from economic development, affordability, 
um, safe communities, uh, healthy communities from a behavioral health on point of view, uh, uh, access to capital through entrepreneurship, wealth building, and uh, education and jobs. Um, we have to look at some of these communities that are across the country that's been underserved in a holistic matter. It's not just one issue that's affecting those communities. And so specifically with the black community, um, we see issues that are plaguing the community right now. Um, we see the public safety issues um, and that last uh, movement to defund the police um, has put these communities more at risk. Um, we also know that um, because of the pandemic and the lockdowns, um, we have a huge um, behavioral health challenges as well as a um, challenge to our education system um, because, you know, you saw more and more of the effect of bad education uh, when people were locked down and didn't have access to education for two years. And that's made these children um, who are currently uh, committing a lot of the crime in some of the urban areas, you know, um, without skills, basic skills on reading, math, um, literacy, uh, and that's created a, a powder keg um, um, in those communities. And on top of that, you know, you have fatherlessness, you know, um, families that need to be reunited, you know, um, and just a, a whole history of issues in the behavioral health um, column. And so what I'm suggesting is that Republicans need to amplify real solutions, not just talk about the problems, um, but amplifying solutions. Um, that that includes, you know, a um, way to reform our education systems or or ways to uh, um, create safer communities by investing in police, you know, and creating better police and community relations. Um, but it also includes, you know, um, and investing in research and specific, um, you know, core morbidities that affect these communities that, that that make them unhealthy, you know, um, and then creating access to capital so they can create jobs. And uh, we, um, as a party, have a, a playbook that was developed by um, President Trump through the Platinum Plan that we can leverage um, for today's forgotten communities and those black communities. And the book is called Underserved, and you can find that at underservedbook.com. The author, Jerron Smith, who's a former White House official under Donald Trump. And uh, what about also the importance of the faith community for uplifting um, underserved communities and also helping individuals recover uh, from trauma? And I, and I understand you have some personal experience with this as well. That's exactly right. I think that um, everyone uh, has challenges in life. But not everyone um, has a, a mother and a father in their household. Um, and in many cases, mother and father may be dealing with addiction um, or may be formerly incarcerated. And so what we need to think about is how we can work with our um, churches and nonprofits um, and rebuild civil society to create uh, infrastructure around mental health. Uh, I'm currently doing some work with an organization called Carousellas, that um, creates a, a better network through technology um, for communities. And we're, we're working to kind of launch a mental health campaign for our youth because there's obviously a correlation between uh, the, the mental health issues in the community um, as well as some of the increase in violent crime. And so um, as we're trying to make sure we hold um, people who commit violent crimes accountable, um, we also want to create infrastructure that if, they, um, if we put them into prison, um, we, we make sure that they come back and are productive citizens, um, or we 
develop some crime prevention techniques that will prevent them from doing these crimes in the first place. Um, but again, all these things are holistic in nature, and we need not only a whole of government approach, um, but also a whole of civil society approach. And that's what we talk about and underserve, just nuanced ways to fixing these issues, um, because it's not, it's not about talking points. It's about things that can actually get things done. Yeah, and that is such an important point that I think so often, um, even even Christians and the broader faith community uh, tends to isolate politics and look to government as the solution instead of looking to church and uh, these these parachurch organizations as partners in the solution to actually influence and impact civil society. We can't have this a uh, separation, if you will, of church and state in the sense of a holistic approach uh, to the problems in civil society, because if we only look to government, government is a non-revenue generating institution. It has limited powers and should have limited powers and also doesn't have the solutions to uh, to find God and and to have the correct biblical worldview. And when you're talking about solutions like um, you know, fatherlessness and 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 giving people um, hope for eternity and for for their souls. You can't just look to a government structure. You have to look to the truth, and that comes from um, hope that we have in the Lord, and it comes from church, and it comes from those partnerships. And so, engagement um, from the church into civil society has to be part of this. And um, and I love that approach in the way that you um, described this. Jaron, because um, I think a lot of people see sometimes um, just the the parties as the political solution, not um, more of the holistic approach. Um, so in just the last few minutes I have with you here as well, um, I, I'd love to ask you just broadly um, your, your take also on the primary. Um, and so obviously, you know, President Trump is the clear front runner here. Um, what do you think about how the uh, the party is looking in terms of the candidates moving forward and 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 I and you're supporting President Trump? Sure. So one, I want to say that um, each person in the party um, needs to get the book and um, you know maybe take heed to the playbook because the one significant part that Trump did in his in his administration was be able to connect with middle class voters and underserved communities. Um, in a way that that gave them hope um, for America and not just hope. He had some policy solutions that lifted all boats. And I think that's the the new um, Republican Party. That's what undergirds the America First agenda is, is thinking about those communities that have been forgotten and left behind. So I think each and every candidate needs to speak to that. Um, I mean, right now, um, I, I'm focused on trying to make sure that this conversation is being had uh, within the party. Um, I have two former bosses um, outside of President Trump that are running, uh, Senator Scott and um, former Vice President um, Pence. Um, but, I've, you know, whenever uh, any one of these campaigns reach out, I'm, I try to be consistent about um, the work and the policy piece. You know, and ultimately, you know, I'm going to support whoever is the Republican candidate um, because I think conservatives are in the best position to empower civil society in a unique way because we do believe that it's not all about the government and especially when you're dealing with issues of the human heart you know we need to kind of look at communities and empowering um, churches faith community um, to help us uh, revitalize and make america great again 
Yeah, really, really well said. And I agree with you. We need to uh, support the nominee and uh, and well said. So I didn't realize you had several former bosses. But uh, thanks so much for your work, uh, Jaron, and, uh, you know, for President Trump and for uh, Pence and Scott as well. Um, you know, I think that just that just showcases that, um, you know, we have so many leaders in the party and we need to be focused on the issue. So the book is Underserved. You can find it at underservedbook.com. That's all the time that we have for here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. You can always reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.